Amen. Take and open your copies of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12. If you're using the, uh, the Pew Bible, the Bible under the seat uh, that you're sitting in or in front of you, it's on page 1029, as we continue uh, in our, our walk through uh, the letter of 1 Peter. As you find your place this morning, uh, just remind you of some things that are going on this week. Uh, no evening activities tonight, but next Sunday evening at 5 o'clock, uh, we'll gather for worship together as a church body, uh, for uh, worship through the reading of God's Word, the teaching of God's Word, as we look at the entire book of Romans. Uh, so you can, uh, in preparation this week, be looking through, reading through the book of Romans. This week, we'll share in the Lord's Supper uh, together as a church body next Sunday night uh, at 5 p.m. as part of our worship. And uh, I would encourage you, if you're a member of this body, to please come and be a part of that time, uh, particularly as we share in the Lord's Supper together. God, uh, uh, Jesus has given us, given the church two ordinances to follow, two things to do regularly as a body. One is baptism as believers enter into, new believers enter into the, the body of Christ for the first time through faith in Jesus. We baptize them into the body in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then Jesus has also instructed us as a body to take the Lord's Supper together, to do that in remembrance of him, his death and resurrection uh, for our sins and for our justification with God. So make, to, make next uh, uh, Sunday evening a priority for you and your family to worship together, especially as we take uh, the Lord's Supper together as a body. This Wednesday night at 6.15, you'll know we have prayer. Uh, as a church body, we meet in uh, room E1. That's in this east hallway, first room on the left. Pray for 15, 20 minutes, and then at 6.30, choir will meet for rehearsal. We'll have a small Bible study uh, in that same room, E1, for those that want to uh, come and continue exploring uh, the book of First Peter. We've had a good time on Wednesday nights doing that. And then children have Praise Factory at 6.15. Uh, on Wednesday evenings as well. I want to let you know of one thing we have coming up in two weeks. That's October 1st, two weeks from today. Uh, Right after uh, worship that morning, we're going to grill some hot dogs and we're going to have lunch together as a church family. And we're going to give you several opportunities, the ways that you can know how to plug into service in the the church body. So maybe you've been here for a long time uh, as a member or you've uh, been a member for a short time or even you're thinking about joining our church uh, and you're looking for a place and a way to serve. We're going to have several opportunities for you to begin to plug in with people that are already serving in different ways as greeters, as ushers, a uh, hospitality team that uh, takes care of coffee and things on Sunday mornings. And uh, if you're interested in serving in children's ministry or with youth, uh, Sunday, October 1st, right after church, we'll have lunch together. We'll get in little groups and you can talk uh, with folks that are already serving about how you can begin to plug in and serve on those teams too. And so I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be a good time together as a church body as we uh, endeavor to serve the body uh, together well. That said, let's turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And as we read this together, let's do as we have and, and stand together in honor of reading God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the Apostle Peter, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, writes this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Father God, this is your word. We submit ourselves to it. God, you transform us through your word. Use me this morning, God, not to say anything clever that I have uh, thought to say, but, but God, only that which you have already said, so that your church, yeah, these believers that gather together under the name of Jesus might be better edified, built up, 
to walk obediently and faithfully uh, to the Savior that we, uh, that, that we call upon this morning. All this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, God, add blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Thank you. So thus far in 1 Peter, we've seen a, a, a lot. There's been a lot at play in this letter that Peter writes to the church. And by way of introduction, I will sum up or remind us of where we have been to this point. So far, Peter has spent quite a bit of time laying out a, a clear theological description of what God has done in salvation, in saving people, and as a result, what God has called those he has saved to be and to do. We saw in chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, that God has saved those who trust in Christ to receive this wonderful, uh, imperishable inheritance of eternal life. We saw in chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, that those whom God has saved, Christians, those trusting in Jesus, he has also called to live holy lives. To live lives that mirror his holy character in the world. And then last week in chapter 1, 22 through chapter 2, verse 10, we saw that as believers then live holy lives, Christians are to love one another. They're to grow in God's word. And as they do that, God builds them to be a living witness, a living testimony to the good news of forgiveness of sins that comes through faith in Jesus. And in light of all that, Peter then writes here in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, to say essentially that Christians, believers in Christ, are to battle, are to fight against sinful desires. And to live such holy and, and winsome, compassionate lives that those who might accuse believers for being evil will ultimately be won over, will be wooed over by the gospel uh, that is testified to by the godliness of Christians' conduct in this world. So let's look then at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. And as we do, first we see in verse 11 this call, Christian, fight for holiness. Christian, fight for holiness. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Do you not love how Peter begins this verse? Beloved, beloved. Some of your translations may say dear friends, but I think beloved is a far better translation these are Christians who are beloved by God, loved by God, because we saw in, in chapter 1, verse 1, where Peter calls the church elect exiles, chosen exiles, according to the foreknowledge of the Father. And we saw several weeks ago that foreknowledge has not just to do with knowing things ahead of time, but loving people even before they were ever born or ever existed, that God has loved you, Christian, from eternity past Christians are loved by God. They're also loved by Peter, this apostle, who has spent his life, the last 30 years of his life since Christ ascended to heaven, uh, planting churches, preaching the gospel, encouraging Christians. Peter loves these people as well. Beloved, he begins. He calls them as beloved because they've been chosen by God, loved by God. They have been made to be sojourners and exiles. They are strangers in this world. Highlighting again that because Christians are citizens of heaven by God's love, by our faith in Christ, by our salvation, because we uh, are citizens of heaven, we are resident aliens here on this earth. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, the old song goes, right? So we should not feel uh, totally comfortable or totally at home. If you're a follower of Jesus and day to day you live in this tension of, man, I just don't feel quite right here. Um, something good is going on. The Lord is calling you to place your attention, place your focus on spiritual things and not worldly things. Beloved, you are sojourners and aliens. So then, as beloved children, 
fight for holiness by living in the Spirit. Peter says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. As sojourners, as exiles, resident aliens in this world, Christians are to abstain. They're to keep distance from these passions of the flesh that Peter talks about. That's kind of a strange way, a strange manner of speaking, passions of the flesh. That word flesh, though, in the New Testament, particularly in the New Testament letters written by Paul and written by Peter, essentially means this. the, The flesh is that part of us that is still drawn to sin. It is associated with our physical bodies, uh, bodies that were born in and begun in sin, trained in sin, continue to have this disposition, this pull to rebel against God, to do what pleases us most and not what pleases God. Before knowing Jesus, we know that no one, not any one person in the flesh has any hope of living any way other than by your fleshly desires, by your sinful passions. But when the sinner is born again, When she believes on Jesus for salvation, she has the Holy Spirit of God living in her, changing her heart, her desires. Because the physical body of the believer is still the body that was born in sin and grown in sin, there are yet rebellious tendencies and desires within her. Those are the passions of the flesh that Peter is warning the Christian about. Now, the body itself is not evil. Our physical bodies are not evil, as some in uh, theological history or history throughout the church have, have sought to say that our bodies are evil and the spirit is good. And boy, if we could just cast off this evil body, everything would be okay. But remember that God created Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis with physical bodies, uh, uh, enfleshed souls, if we can say it that way. And he called that good. Right? Not evil. So the bodies are not evil, but the sinful tendencies of our bodies are. So it's not the flesh we need to be, the physical flesh we need to be rid of, but, but the fleshly desires that God has saved us from. The body itself is not evil, but the body has been born. It's been trained in sin. Those of you who have children, you know this well. We know this well in my house right now. Um, amen, I hear, yeah. We've been born in sin. We've been trained in sin. Friend, you know how to sin better than you know how to do anything else in your life. And in order to break free of those sinful tendencies, we require, we need a supernatural work of God's own spirit in us to overcome and to sanctify our our sinful human will. Peter gives a list in chapter 2, verse 1, of, of passions of the flesh to put off. We saw this last week. He says, you know, put away malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Put away all these. These are all very helpful examples of fleshly desires. Uh, but Peter is good to give us a few more examples as well in case uh, you don't happen to struggle with any of those. In chapter two, uh, 4, verse 3, he gives a list of other fleshly desires. He says, the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. That is living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Paul, the Apostle Paul, gives us an even more extensive list of the passions of the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 21, Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Notice that Paul even says, This list is not exhaustive. And things like these. The passions of the flesh are multifaceted. They are myriad. There is no escaping them, and each of us struggles and and fights, has this disposition to follow our sinful tendencies in one way or another. If you can't say amen this morning, say ouch. (laughs) 
these desires, these sinful desires, the pull of our hearts to rebel against God, to seek what, what makes me happiest, these desires are inherently dangerous. They are inherently deadly. These sinful desires, Peter says in verse 11, wage war against the soul. They, they are fighting for your soul. Yet we do often as Christians find ourselves, even though we know that we are saved, even though we know we are trusting in Christ, we often do find ourselves, don't we, doing the sorts of things that we have been saved from and called not to do. Even though we know Jesus has died to save us from our sins, even though we know that as the Holy Spirit lives in us and is making us holy, we, 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 are, we are no longer separated from God because of our sin, but we still struggle with sin. That's a, that, that war, that battle within us is a real, tangible, palpable spiritual battle. This is the tension that we live in as followers of Jesus. The Christian, the believer in Jesus, knows that he is saved from sin. He knows that his sin is forgiven. But he also lives with the regular pull of sin in his own heart away from the Holy Spirit, away from holiness, away from the Father. We know that we are being made to be holy as the Holy Spirit lives in us. But at the same time, we know that there are parts of us that still chase after holy things, un- unholy things. But because we're beloved by God, because he has loved us, he's chosen to save us, he has caused us to have faith in Christ... We need to then be obedient to pursue the command to be holy as God is holy that we saw several weeks ago earlier in Peter's letter. We need to recognize as part of that uh, pursuit of Christian holiness, we need to recognize the real and present danger of sin. Our hearts need the reminder of God to Cain before he killed his brother Abel in Genesis 4. You recall there, Cain was jealous of his brother Abel and that God had favor on Abel's uh, sacrifice and not favor on Cain's sacrifice. And Cain, in his anger, uh, sought to kill his brother Abel. And as he's plotting and scheming out in the field, uh, the Lord comes to uh, Cain and he says to him this, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. This is the picture of what God says about sin, about temptation to Cain. He says, sin, temptation is like a a, a wild beast, a wild lion crouched down in the grass of the plain waiting to pounce on its prey. And it's waiting to eat you alive, Cain. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. See sin for the danger that it is. Recognize temptation. Flee from it. Avoid it. Put it to death. Otherwise, it will kill you. Christians are to wage war against sin and sinful desires. We're to fight for holiness because sin is dangerous. In our flesh, this is incredibly difficult to do. In our flesh, it's, it's, it is impossible to fight against the, the, the disposition uh, uh, that we have in our hearts to sin. But Paul, famously, in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 24, says that even though you can't do it on your own in the flesh, you can do it with the help of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22, 24 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ uh, have, been cruci- have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Friend, you need to realize that the battle against sin is not a physical battle, but a spiritual one. It's not a battle you can fight in the flesh. It's a battle you have to fight in the spirit. 
You can, know, you can sooner blow out a forest fire like a birthday candle than you can battle against sin in your own physical strength. It's not possible. You cannot do it. You need help. I need help to overcome sin in our life. We need help from the only one who has never sinned and from the only one who has never given in to temptation. We need help from Jesus. And Christian, you who trust in Jesus today, you have that help with the very spirit of Christ that lives in you and dwells in you. So fight for, holy, fight for holiness and for holy character, not in your own strength, but in the strength that God provides through the Holy Spirit. That your life might not be marked by chasing after these sinful fleshly desires, but that your life might be marked by the fruit of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As the church then, as we fight for holiness, in our fight uh, for holy conduct, for, for a conduct that honors uh, God and reflects the nature of Jesus, we must fight together against sin like the spiritual battle it really is. We have to fight against sin like the battle that it really is. There's a reason Peter uses warlike imagery here in talking about sin and fighting against it. Because it's a war. And it's a war for your soul. We know that, don't we? We know that. Those of us who are in Christ, we know this constant tension that we have. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, pulling us, uh, drawing us into holiness and, 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 and more Christ-like conduct and manner of living. And yet our flesh pulls us the other way. And so sometimes we find ourselves with those words of Paul from Romans chapter 7 echoing in our heads. I I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I do want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me? We know as Paul knew and, and, and and explains in Romans chapter 8, Jesus, Jesus will save me. He who never sinned took my place. On the cross to die for my sins, that not only might my sins be forgiven, but that God might now live in me and help me to overcome these things that I can't get past. Christians, we know this battle. We also need to recognize that that this is a battle we can't fight or win in our own power. You weren't saved from your sin on your own or in your own strength. You certainly won't have victory over sin on your own or in your own strength. And in this world where we live as strangers, strangers and and aliens, the odds are ever stacked against us in this fight against sin. Temptation is everywhere. Subtle, sinful suggestions uh, abound in film and on television and in popular literature and music and the culture around us. Certainly the laundry list of, of illicit sins that we read from Paul and from Peter come to mind. But there are also more subtle, less obvious sins that also wage war against our souls. Perhaps you fight regularly. Maybe you don't even recognize that it's a fight for your soul. Maybe you give into it willingly. The sin or the temptation of consumerism and materialism. This would not seem immediately evil or pernicious, yet we spend our time and our money on getting what we want in this culture. In our individualistic Western American society, the constant refrain of the world is get what you can for yourself, why you can, so you can enjoy things. So we go after things like a better house, a nicer car, bigger TV. We fill our homes and our hearts with stuff to show how well we've got it together. Look at how successful of a life I have. Look at all the things that I have. Successful people have things and I have things. So see how successful and happy I am. And all the while, we're trusting in things to give our lives meaning. 
We're trusting in stuff and insane. Uh, uh, we're trusting in, in, in stuff to, to fill a, a void, a hole in our hearts. We go into crazy amounts of debt just to keep up appearances in a culture where appearances are everything. We're drowning in the sin of consumerism and materialism. We have no way to get out. Perhaps it's not consumerism or materialism for you. Perhaps it's, it's the sin of lust or, or, uh, or consumption of pornography. The statistics of, uh, of pornography usage in the United States uh, show that, that percentages of the population that are involved in using it are nearly the same in the church as outside the church. Let me say this again. There are as many people fighting the temptation, the sin, to look at pornography. People, same amount, a number of people who are looking at pornography on a regular basis inside the church as outside the church. Yet among Christians, it's been my experience, perhaps yours too, that virtually none of the Christians that are really fighting this sin or maybe losing in this fight against sin of, of lust or, or pornography usage, virtually none are comfortable sharing their struggle with others in the church because of the shame that they already feel for their sin, because of the condemnation that's often heaped upon them uh, who, who do struggle, the condemnation that's heaped up in our small group conversations and even from pulpits. We cast aspersions and we talk down about this sin and the people that do those kinds of sins as though we've all got it figured out and none of us has ever struggled with it. Brother or sister, there are people in this church who know your struggle with lust and pornography. We understand it. We know that you have failed. Some of us have failed too. We know that we haven't got it all together. And we know that we're not okay not having it all together, that we want to get it. We want, we want Christ to fix things in us. Maybe those things aren't, aren't struggles for you in your life. Maybe those things aren't temptations for your life. Maybe there's just unresolved conflict in your marriage or in your family. I've often known families who at home, everything is crumbling apart. Mom and dad don't get together. Kids are a mess. Whole family life is a wreck. But on Sunday morning, you wouldn't know it and no one else in the church would either. Because we put on a happy face, let everyone know that everything's okay. We've got it all together. And all the while we're struggling in our home because they're broken and we're, we're losing this fight against sin of conflict and, and, and unresolved conflict and unforgiveness and bitterness and anger and rebellion in the home. But we put on a happy face at church because at church, people got to know that I have it all together. The brokenness that comes from these lesser seen sins, these often hidden sins, then in the church goes unhealed and unresolved. The fight is never fought because we pretend like there's no war waging. Our sins are unsuccessfully fought against because of the need to appear as though we've got it all together. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you, sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We do need to fight against sin. We do need to fight against sin in all of its forms in our life. Not just these licentious, illicit things that are listed in Scripture, but against the things that, that society would say are not so bad. We need to fight against every kind of sin, but we need to do this, uh, bat, wage this battle, fight this fight against sin, not in our own power, certainly in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it on your own. So uh, submit your life to Christ, submit your life to God that he might fight for you. But also we need to fight this battle in the strength of the family of faith that God has given to us. Brothers and sisters, we need one another's help here. You need help to fight against sin. 
Not just help from the Holy Spirit. You need help from brothers and sisters in this body who know you and care about you. We need to be honest about the fact that we don't have it all together in this life. And we need to be clear about the fact that we don't want to stay in this place of not having it all together. We need to be able to be a a, a safe space where the grace of God abounds so we can say, brother, I'm struggling with this. I'm fighting this. I failed in sin in this way this week and I need help. I don't want to stay there. I need help to walk in repentance. I need accountability. I need assistance. I need you to check in on me. I need you to pray for me. Christian, and here I'm speaking to every one of you who claims Christ as Savior, you need someone in your life to share your struggles. You need someone that you can confess sin to. You need someone that you can confess your temptation to. You need someone who can pray for you and with you and who can help you resist temptation and help you to repent from sin. The church is a place for sinners, but only a certain kind repenting ones. The church is a place for people who are broken, but who don't want to be anymore. We recognize our brokenness and we also recognize the help that we need from Christ to save us from our sin and the help that we need from other brothers and sisters uh, to wage this war against sin in this life. Friends, as your pastor, can, can I ask you this? Can we please be that church? Can, can, we be that, can we be that church where, where people who are broken and messed up and whose lives are out of control can come and find rest, can come and find grace, can come and find help and not shame or condemnation or ostracization? We can't help you. You're not enough like us. Your, your problems are too big. We can't handle that here. Let me be really honest with you about a prayer that I have had uh, in my heart for our church, um, uh, at least the last month, but probably more like for the last year. I am praying and hoping on a regular basis that God will bring to us, to our church, some really uh, hard, difficult, broken people who know, who, who, who have lived far more life, maybe in their short amount of years than any of us could, could imagine to live. People who have been really, really, really far from God, who have done things that we can't even imagine to do, but who realize and recognize their brokenness and want to be made whole in Jesus. I am praying for hard ministry situations so that the power of God and the glory of, of the gospel might be shown in transformed lives that happen in this church and as a result of our ministry. I'm praying for people who are really broken, really far from God to come to our church looking for wholeness. You know what I need from you? I need you to stand with open arms, arms of grace, open arms, those who know and have tasted the immense love of God in Christ to wrap your arms around those broken, hurting people who maybe have lived their lives for a long time, very far from God. And to say, brother, sister, it's not okay, but we're going to walk together. I'm going to hold your hand, arm in arm, We're going to fight this fight of sin together. We're going to repent together. Church, can we be that church? You know where it starts? It starts not just with an attitude, but also with actions. So this this means that that in order for us to be opening, and and I'm not saying opening and affirming of all sin, but but affirming of sinners as people who are created in the image of God, that, that God intends to save through faith in Christ. It starts with us being able to learn to be honest with each other about our struggles and our fights. If, if you know 
If you know that you just in your life, you don't have it all together and you would be so bold as to raise your hand so that I don't have it all together, would you do And I'm not raising my hand as an example of what it looks like to raise your hand. I don't have it all together, okay? Let me be really honest with you. Here's a, I want to model this for you. And so this is not an example. This is a real life uh, fight for me. My, my battle against sin takes many different forms, but here's, here's one. Uh, that, that has affected more relationships and things in my life, may, maybe than most. Uh, and that is anger. C- can I confess to you that I love to be angry? That's psychotic. I don't know. I don't know what kind of. I love to be angry. I love to feel that sense of control that I have when I'm angry and 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 just livid and and to the point of wanting to I'd scream my brains out. My love for anger has harmed my marriage at times. It's affected my, uh, my relationship with my children at times. It's affected my relationship even with people in this church at times. Oh, that kills me. It kills me. I love to be angry, but, but, but as I'm angry, I hate, I hate the sin that, that is coming out when I'm expressing my anger. I'm not trying to set an example of, of, of things that are fixed or how to fix things because I haven't fixed it yet. It's still a fight for me, a daily fight for me. Friends, will you pray for me? Will you pray for me that, that, that in the power of the Spirit and with your help, uh, that God might give me victory over anger in my life? Help me be accountable to that, please. If you see me, if you see me losing it, call me on it, catch me on it. Do it graciously, but call me on it. Friends, this is what it looks like to be open and honest. We have to be vulnerable. We, we, we're, giving, we're, we're opening ourselves to the possibility of being hurt by somebody else by confessing our sin. Somebody may take that and, and run with it in the other direction, may take advantage of you. Prayerfully, that won't happen as we do it. But as we seek God together and seek to fight against holiness, we have to fight for transparency about our sin and our desire to have victory over it and to help one another to do that. Christian, fight for holiness. Then look at verse 12. Peter says, essentially, Christian, so not just fight for holiness, but also live with gospel integrity. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, among unbelievers, Peter says. Essentially, that that is to say this, live with Christian integrity and holiness, especially when you're in the presence of non-believers, especially when you're in the presence of those who don't know Jesus. Now, this word conduct that Peter uses, keep your conduct honorable, is a word that he uses six different times over the course of his letter. We've already seen it twice, once in chapter 1, verse 15, where Peter says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. In chapter 1, verse 18, where Peter says, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways, that is the feudal conduct, is the same word in the Greek language, inherited from your forefathers. We'll see it, uh, we see it this week, right, in chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We'll see it next week in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where Peter addresses the way that wives, believing wives, are to live with their unbelieving husbands. Saying, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some don't obey the word, that is the word of the gospel, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He's going to use it again in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. 
In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior, your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. Several times, Peter calls the church to live with holy conduct, to live with godly conduct, to, to, to have this behavior, this pattern of living that reflects holiness and godliness. And yet, there's this paradox of living with gospel integrity. When we say what we say and, and believe what we believe about the gospel, about the good news that Jesus died for sinners, and we live in light of that, we proclaim that into the world, we live lives of holiness, the paradox is this, that you in living godly lives will be called evildoers by non-believers. Certainly, it would seem evil, wouldn't it, to a non-believer not to fall in line with the prevailing sinful current, not to join in with the kinds of sin that the world says is okay. Certainly, this much is true even in the 21st century where the dogma of tolerance, which is equated with indiscriminate acceptance of all people irrespective of what they're doing, this dogma of tolerance prohibits any dissent from the current cultural and, and even sexual revolutions going on in our nation today. This is the paradox of holy living, that in doing what God has commanded, those who have no regard for God or for godliness would call Christians evil. Yet, God, through Peter here, insists that Christians must continue to live a holy life because as they do, non-believers are given a light by which to see their own sin and the grace of God in Christ. He says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that, for the purpose that, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The point is this, that Christian, the, the Christian, as he or she, conducts himself or herself in a noble manner, in a godly way, in this world, with the gospel on their lips, as they endure suffering for well-doing, and so prove that we are being made to be like Christ, Christ himself who, who endured suffering, and false accusations for his perfect life. We are showing the world what a, what a life transformed by Jesus looks like. When we get called all sort of names. And we get treated all sort of different ways. For saying this is sinful and this is what God has called me not to do. So I'm not going to do that. And people call you evil but you continue to live the way that God has called you to live. Peter says Gentiles will see it. Non-believers will see it. And the result of it will be that they will glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says, fight for holiness, live with gospel integrity so that with the purpose that non-believers will see the transformative work of God in your life and come to trust in Jesus. He says, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16, Jesus said a very similar thing. There we read Jesus saying this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me read this again and then read Peter's words again. You see the similarity. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Peter says... Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Now, the wording, the exact wording between what Jesus is recorded saying in Matthew and what Peter here writes is not exact, but, but it's so similar that we cannot ignore the connection between the two. Peter is applying the teachings of Jesus to the church. The point is this, the principle remains, even though what Jesus and what Peter says are not exactly the same, the principle remains. Holy lives stand as a witness to the transformative power of a gracious God. And holy lives serve to convince non-believers of the truth of the gospel that we proclaim, which leads to non-believers' salvation and their subsequent glorifying of God. That non-believers might see, even in calling you evil, you continue, you take, you take one slap on a cheek, you turn to him the other cheek, right? You take insult after insult, never returning uh, evil for evil or malice for malice, but always just, you take it and you, you ask God for strength to endure. You extend forgiveness and you continue walking forward. The non-believer who continues to heap insult upon insult on the believer that lives with gospel integrity, then over time we'll see, we'll observe there's something different about this person. Because when I insult other people, they return insults. When I speak evil against somebody, they punch me in the face. But this guy just smiles and says, God love you, God bless you, and moves along. I don't, something's not right with this guy. It's not that something's not right. It's that something is quite right. It's that the believer knows the one uh, who, who, who extends grace and forgiveness perfectly. And in knowing God who extends us grace and forgiveness, we can extend grace and forgiveness as we live in a holy way in this world of non-believers, giving an example to those who see us. Now this phrase, day of visitation, they glorify God on the day of visitation, implies, is certainly pointing to the return of Christ into final judgment. That present non-believers will glorify God on the day of judgment does not necessarily mean that they remain in their unbelief until that day. Some scholars have looked at this verse and, and, and seen the, the glorifying of God on the day of judgment by non-believers to be in the vein of what we read in Philippians chapter 2, uh, where Paul says of Jesus, uh, every knee on heaven and on earth and under the earth shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, on the day of judgment, all people, irrespective of whether you are trusting Jesus or not trusting Jesus, you will have to recognize that Jesus is king and you are not. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, that's a glorious day. It's a wonderful day. It's a happy day. Because our king is here, right? Our king is, is reigning perfectly and eternally. For the non-believer, that's a hard day. The non-believer, he, he recognizes, he calls out what he does. Uh, he, he, he recognizes what is true, that Christ is Lord, but he doesn't like that he does it. However, when, first Peter, when Peter writes here in his letter, that they may see your deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, I think he has in mind the salvation of non-believers through the witness uh, of believers that are living with gospel integrity. So notice then that Peter, though he calls the church to holiness, he calls the church to abstain, to distance themselves from the sinful pool of the world and of the flesh. He does not call the church to retreat from the world. He doesn't say fight for holiness, build yourself a bunker. Instead, he says, be in the world, live in the world in such a way as a beloved and saved child of God that the light of the gospel shines out of every pore of your body into a world that is stuck in the darkness of sin. Think of it this way. A Christian, God has not saved you, not, nor has he saved anyone from sin to remove them from the dangers of this world. Rather, he has saved us that we might join him in his divine rescue mission of those that are lost and far from God in this world. 
God doesn't save you to strip you out of this place so you don't have to do anything. God saves you and he leaves you in the muck and mire of a sinful world so that you, in knowing the king, in knowing the one who rescues, can point others to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus, the son of God who died for our sins and rose from the dead, that by faith in him, their hearts can be transformed, their lives can be changed. They can begin to live not as those who are slaves to their sinful desires, but those who enjoy doing holiness because God has made them to be holy. So then, church, as believers, we are obligated to live with such Christian integrity and compassion in this world that no one can deny that we have been changed by the gospel. That's where the rubber meets the road of this passage in your life. To live Christian in this world with such integrity that as you proclaim the gospel of Jesus and you live out a life transformed by the gospel, you are loving others, you're extending grace and compassion to those in need, pointing people to the Savior that they need to know, that no one in this world, whether they call you evil or not, or irrespective of what they think about you, no one can deny that your life has been changed by the gospel. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called, that's how we're called to live. Christians are not to disengage with the world in which they find themselves to be sojourners and resident aliens, to be exiles. But we are to so engage in this world in such a way that it's undeniably and recognizably Christian. So teachers, we have many in our church body. As you think about living with, with gospel integrity in the world, Every day, preparing yourself for t- to teach children, whether you teach in a private school or a public school. Go into it with a mindset that you're going to teach and to treat the children that are in your care with all of the love of Christ and conviction of your faith at every turn. See the massive amount of influence that you have in the lives of children and, and in their families who may not know Christ. And go into work every day at school with the mindset, I'm going to be a missionary to these children, these children's families, as a result of what I'm doing today. Business, businessman, businesswoman, you who are working maybe in the corporate world, as you seek to live with gospel integrity, conduct yourself at work to the highest ethical standard. Never gain at someone else's loss. Lead with selfless service. Never compromise your faith for a promotion or an advancement. Be honest in all of your dealings. Students, middle school, high school, college students, you're going to live with gospel integrity, do it this way. Respect your educators and those in authority. Treat others with kindness and compassion, knowing that you live in a world that often does the opposite. Work hard. Work with integrity. Boldly cling to Christ as king and final authority of your life for how you will engage in dating relationships and where you will go and spend your free time, who you will spend that free time with, what you will spend your free time doing. Make Christ king of all of that, student. That's how you live with gospel integrity. Now, at this juncture, I would warn us of a, of a, of a problematic saying Uh, that might seek to deter us from what we're called to really do in in living lives of gospel integrity. It has been said that St. Francis of Assisi, a medieval uh, monk, a preacher to wildlife, once said, said, seriously, you find a picture, a a statue of St. Francis of Assisi, he's like holding a squirrel in one hand and a bird. It's like straight out of a Disney movie. Um, Some have said that St. Francis of Assisi once said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. 
Oh, we like that. That's good. That's good. I like that. Preach the gospel all the time. If necessary, use words. That means I can just live my life and people can see the gospel. Wrong. That, that statement is wrong for, for two reasons. One, praise God, St. Francis of Assisi never said it. St. Francis of Assisi was a preacher using words. Number two, it can't be done. You can't preach the gospel without using words. Now, you can, you can live a life of integrity that is not necessarily a life of gospel integrity because you're not proclaiming the gospel with words into the world. I know lots of lost people that are really nice folks. I know lots of people that are far from Jesus that work hard, that work with integrity, that do, that, that do good work and do care for others. I know lots of lost people that are good students that respect their elders and they work hard in school and they don't waste their time uh, on frivolous things and they're not getting into trouble in the world, but they don't know Jesus. It is possible to be a really nice person in this world, to live with integrity, but to also live in integrity in a way that the gospel is completely absent from it. To live a life of gospel integrity, you must not just live this way and show a picture of what a a Christian life looks like, but you must also proclaim that which makes you Christian. You cannot live a life of gospel integrity without proclaiming the gospel. As you do that, as you preach the gospel to a lost world, and as you live with integrity, live in the way that God has called you to live, you can expect to take your lumps for being a follower of Christ. Expect it. Look forward to it. As much as you can, plan for it and prepare for it. You can expect to be called evil for calling sin what it is. You can trust that in many ways, as you follow Jesus in this world, that you will not always be well-liked by those who despise the things of God. But you can also know that as you live with gospel integrity, as you fight for holiness, that God is working through you in your pursuit of holy living and gospel integrity to put before non-believers around you, people who don't know Jesus, an example of a life transformed by Jesus. That they might not just hear the message of the gospel, but see it in action. And to want what you have, which is not a nice life, but to want what you, what you have, which is, which is a relationship with the God who created you. Freedom from sin. The ability to say no to, to, to fleshly desires. The ability to, to walk and to live in such a way that, that brings life and grace to others. Because we have received life and grace from God. Christian, fight for holiness. And Christian, speak and live with gospel integrity. Let's pray.